You said it wasn't an accident. Check. You said it wasn't suicide. Check. You said it was murder. Check. You thought you had a cold, didn't you? All wrapped up in tissue paper with pink ribbons around it. It was perfect. Except it wasn't because you made one mistake. Just one little mistake. When it came to picking the killer, you picked the wrong guy. You want to know who killed Dietrichson? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keys. I killed Dietrichson. Just in the same way the movie opens, double indemnity began its life in death. In 1927, Albert Snyder was living with his wife, Ruth, and their baby daughter, Lorraine, in Queens, New York. One day, Ruth answered the door to a travelling salesman named Henry Judd Gray. Gray sold women's corsets, and pretty soon, Ruth had taken off hers and taken Gray to her bed. There, they hatched a plan. Ruth took out a $48,000 policy for double indemnity on her husband, Albert, and then Albert's heart stopped beating. Ruth said he had been murdered in a robbery, but really she and Gray had garroted him and then stuffed his nose with chloroform-soaked rags. Ten months later, Ruth and Henry were wired into the hot seats up in Sing Sing. I can't stand it anymore. What if they did hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It isn't going on this way. They're not going to hang you because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. You know what you're saying? Sure, I know what I'm saying. We're going to do it and we're going to do it right. And I'm the guy that knows how. Walter, you're hurting me. There's not going to be any slip-up, nothing sloppy, nothing weak. It's got to be perfect. Hard-boiled crime writer James M. Kane was so taken with the Snyder case, he used it as the basis for not one, but two of his best-known works, Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Double Indemnity immediately caught the attention of the studios, but just as quickly, the property lost its heat because the newly established Hayes office decreed the story unfit for production. All that sex and murder was just downright nasty. Well, Double Indemnity is all about downright nasty. For almost 10 years, the story sat unloved in the vaults of Paramount Pictures. Then, fledgling director Billy Wilder decided to have a go at it. Kane wasn't interested, so Wilder approached another crime writer, some say the best crime writer, Raymond Chandler. Chandler had an ear for tough talk and knew how to twist a tail like a pretzel, but he held Kane in very low regard. Kane liked his stories straight, running from the beginning to the middle to the end with no razzle-dazzle. Chandler, on the other hand, preferred things to be convoluted, really convoluted. How convoluted? When Howard Hawks was adapting The Big Sleep from Chandler's novel, he couldn't figure out who was responsible for one of the murders, so he cabled Chandler to explain. Chandler confessed he didn't know. Chandler's maxim was, if you're stuck for plot, have someone walk through the door with a gun. So he took one look at what Kane had written and said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's do it in flashback with a narrator telling us what was going on. Here is America's greatest living crime novelist, James Elroy, to explain why it works so well. The first person narrated movie rests on one dynamic. It is the story of the person reciting the one great event of their life, the one big adventure of their life. In Walter Ness' case, it's the story of his dissolution and doom, and it's very powerful. Now, a while ago, we spoke about narration in film. Well, not only did Wilder and Chandler use narration and tell the story in flashback, they put the twist at the start. Our narrator, Walter Neff, has taken the slug to the chest and he's leaking like a sieve. And he doesn't so much tell us as dictate a confession to his friend and colleague how it all happened. It adds an air of fatality to the whole thing. 
Neff can't escape his destiny, but he doesn't pity himself. In fact, his delivery is cynical, and in delivering that tone, Double Indemnity did more than any other film to usher sarcasm and pessimism into Hollywood. Just like the first time I came here, isn't it? We were talking about automobile insurance. Only you were thinking about murder. I was thinking about that anklet. And what are you thinking about now? I'm all through thinking, baby. I just came to say goodbye. Goodbye? Where are you going? You're the one that's going, baby, not me. I'm getting off the trolley car right at this corner. Suppose you stop being fancy. Let's have it, whatever it is. Now, while Double Indemnity is film noir, some people will feed you a line that film noir is a genre, like the Western or musical. It ain't. Another thing people will try to tell you is that the femme fatale is an expression of masculinity in crisis. You know, because of World War II. Yes, but Kane wrote the story in the 30s. And then they'll say, oh, the 30s, that's the Great Depression. No jobs, no take-home pay, can't support the family and so on. Nope, don't buy it. Go back to the 19th century and you have Therese Raquin by Emile Zola. Before that, Shakespeare had Lady Macbeth. In Arthurian times, there was Morgan Le Fay. The Greeks had Medusa. And if you look in the Bible, you'll find Delilah and then Salome as early femme fatales. Guess who was the first? So now ask those same people, just how long does a crisis like this last? No, it's not a crisis. It's just nasty, old-fashioned misogyny. My main point is that film noir isn't a genre. The crime thriller, the murder mystery, they're genres. So too is the detective story, and that's been around since Oedipus killed his father and kissed his mother. And before that, you can look at Cain and Abel. No, noir is less a genre and more of a mood, a style, a vernacular, if you will, and it fits the detective genre very well. Being a style, it's very flexible. Blade Runner is science fiction filled with the noir mood. Mildred Pierce is a melodrama made in the noir style, and Double Indemnity is delivered in the noir vernacular. The term film noir says it all. When Hitler marched into Paris in 1940, he banned American movies. It wasn't until after the war, Hollywood pictures returned to French screens. Two French critics, Nino Frank and Jean-Pierre Chartier, took one look at the new offerings, and seeing only shadows, bingo, they gave it a name. It takes the French to explain to Hollywood what's going on inside their movies. Here's the film's director, Billy Wilder. Film noir. I don't know, you know, when I make a picture, I never, I never classify it. I said, this is a comedy. I wait until the preview. If they laugh a lot, I say, this is a comedy. Or serious picture or film noir. I never heard that expression in those days. I just made pictures that I would have liked to see. And if I was lucky, it coincided with, uh, with the taste of the audience. Double Indemnity found an audience when it was released in 1944. It was nominated for seven Oscars, but incredibly didn't win any. But it hardly matters. Almost 70 years on, we're still watching it and still marvelling at it. And not that many people can name the movie that won Best Picture in 1944.